This is an ABC podcast. Jackie Dent is here today. Jackie is a journalist and an author. As a kid, she never really got to know her grandparents on her dad's side. But Jackie was told that before her grandparents died, they'd made a decision that was somewhat unusual for the times to donate their bodies to science. And Jackie never gave this much thought until the chance conversation one day got her wondering what actually happened to her grandparents, to their bodies, after they died. And this led Jackie into the secret world of the anatomists and the dissectors, the people who perform this extraordinary practice in the name of medical science. And Jackie also wanted to know more about the lives of the dissected, to help her understand what motivates people like her grandparents to donate their bodies to science. A business that might seem macabre, but one which anatomists respect as an act of extraordinary generosity. This is, she says, what she found about cutting up the dead. Jackie Dent's book is called The Great Dead Body Teachers. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Richard. You write that your whole life you've been looking for the dead. How has that manifested itself over the years, Jackie? Uh, look, my friends often joke that I'm like a bit of a, a deathy. Uh, if I go on a holiday, I will go to the local graveyard. Uh, I've just come back from overseas and I went and visited two anatomical museums. But I think that a big part of it is that, you know, I grew up in the Philippines and there's a very strong death culture there and there were, you know, open coffin funerals, there were elaborate parades in the street at Easter time. Friends of mine on, Filipino friends of mine, if you look at their Facebook feed, they will visit a friend's grave and they'll be leaning next to it with a thumbs up, sort of saying hi, smiling. Uh, and I think that the Catholic festivals there, I mean, at Easter time, they still crucify people with, you know, they just put it in their hands, not their feet. And so there's still a very rich culture. A lot of it is con- connected to to the Catholic Church. And so when I was a little kid, I moved there when I was six years old. And when I was a child, uh, you know, we used to, you'd stand in the street and there'd be these huge sort of um, open sort of these coffins that go would go past, but they're not bodies. They were statues of Jesus in various poses. And I think as a kid, I, they were so beautiful. And I sort of thought, is that what dead people look like? I, I do think that 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 experience, but also the fact that there were open coffin funerals and that people would be playing cards by the side of the road and there would be a coffin there. You would see coffin shops in the streets. I think it sort of created something for me which seems very normal, but then as an adult in Australia, I'm often accused of being kind of like a deathy widow. Tell me about your first encounter with death as a kid, Jackie. Well, the one that I can probably remember, which is pretty embarrassing, was that my pet Zazbutt died. Who was Zazbutt? Zazbutt was a budgie and he was green and beautiful. And, and how did he die? Uh, the cat ate him, actually, our family cat. And so my dad... When uh, you say ate, do you mean like consumed uh, well, or, or no. like bit it to death like cats normally <laughs> No, do? there was like a... Like basically we are all having breakfast one day and <laughs> so there, was a, there was a scream and sure enough there was the cat with Zazbutt in its <laughs> mouth because we used to let Zazbutt out of the cage and my father always said something's going to happen to that bird 
And sure enough, the cat got Zazbutt. So we buried Zazbutt. There was a pet funeral for poor Zazbutt? We had a, we, yeah, I think we actually, there, he was put in a box and um, I put him in like a little pram. You know how little girls had prams? Um, I think someone played the clarinet. Um, Mum and Dad had their friends oh. over. They had a few drinks um, and... Zazbutt was buried. I, I'm laughing, but these things are actually devastating when you're little. I think they're quite devastating. Yeah, and it's quite a distinctive yeah. memory. And so he died and then for weeks afterwards I kept wondering what did he look like. You, you mean know, now that he was decomposing? Now, yeah, now that he was... I wondered what his body looked like, which I think is a pretty normal kind of scientific thing maybe or just you wondering what it looks like. And so then... And then I, I dug him up and... Really? Yeah. And, and, and once you exhumed Zazbutt... From his backyard grave, what was left of him after? And after how long was this? How, uh, it was like a couple of weeks, and I think there was. I do remember there was a feather. There was some feathers, and it was sort of a bit, bit rottenly. But I took one of the feathers, and I kept that feather for years. Actually, I mean the other thing too is though that in the Philippines, I used to be um, allowed into really quite full-on horror films as a kid. Um, my brothers and I used to go to the mall and would go see really kind of hardcore films and I used to run out of them, I, I recall. So I think also, do you remember that um, movie Creep Show? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so you know that bit where the um, corpse comes back to life? Yep. Yeah, so that scene absolutely is seared into my mind. So now grown up, Jackie. Yes. Uh, goes on this journey into the world of the anatomists and the dissectors. Where did this journey start? What was this incident that led you to go looking for this world and for the story of what happened to your grandparents after their death? I was, it was Christmas a few years ago, pre-COVID, uh, and mum and dad and I had a drink with their next door neighbours and it was a Christmas drink. We're having some sparkling and one of the daughters said, oh, Jackie, you know, you're a journalist. You'd be interested to know that I'm working at this surgical facility and it's attached to a hospital. And the students aren't dissecting full bodies anymore and some of the body parts have flown in from America. So, so they, they, they use body parts rather than the full cadaver for these things? Well, this is what this is yeah. ex- you didn't my know line that. of questioning. Right, yes, so right. I was saying, what, have they, have, have they stopped dissecting? Have they stopped donating bodies? Like, what's going on? And she said, look, I, I don't know all the details. So mum and I walked back home and I'm like, mum, that's really weird if people stop donating their bodies because it has always been in this unusual thing in our family that Ruby and Julie donated their bodies to, to the University of Queensland. And so I thought, oh, that's really terrible. That was my first thing, have Australians stopped donating and why are they shipping in body parts from America? And one thing led to another and here I am now talking to you. So your grandparents uh, were named Ruby and Julie. Your granddad was Julie? That's an interesting name. I know. It's kind of a, I mean, he was one of a very large family, like the second youngest of like 14 children. And we think that the name Julie came about maybe either because his dad maybe had a few too many drinks or the person, maybe it was meant to be Julian or Julius, and that the guy in the registry or the woman in the registry office missed heard, but yes, he, he was called Julie and he was actually very proud of his unusual name. So as a kid, were your parents able to tell you much about their decision to donate the body to science? Um, look, as growing up, we never really, it wasn't like a big discussion. It just occasionally popped up. But then after I found out that, you know, students weren't standing around for years on end, you know, you see those old 1880s photos of people standing around. I thought, you know, once I heard this story from the next door neighbour, I thought, oh, well, what's 
what's going on. And so then I started asking mum and dad, well, why did they do it and what happened? And this became kind of a, an interesting part of the journey of exploring the topic is that mum and dad would just kind of drip feed information and it wasn't you know, they weren't being difficult. It was just things would come to mind. And so mum said, you know, Ruby, she thinks she did it for the science. And I do think it was Ruby's idea. And I think Julie followed her, but then I spoke to an aunt and she said that, oh, well, she did it because she didn't like funerals. And then my dad said that they did it to save on money. So it was kind of interesting having all these different reasons. And then slowly when I went into the body donor research it sort of reflected what was, you know, why people do donate. So, like I said at the outset, you didn't really know them. Do you have any memories of them at all? I do have some very vague memories of, of Julie. He he had a really cool Holden with uh, electric windows and I remember sitting in the back of the car, I must have been about five or six, playing with these electric windows. I do remember, this is a bit of a Queensland story from the 70s, we used to kill cane toads with golf clubs. Mm -hmm. So I remember the driveway, you know, where his car was parked. How did you come to realise that Ruby, your grandmother, had written a journal? I know, this is so incredible. Like, I said to Mum, can you tell me about what, you know, what happened and, you know, why? She goes, I've got Ruby's journal here. And I was like, what? And so she pulls out this book and... You know, I really studied it again and again to try and find clues as to who she was and, you know, what I could get from this sort of, this story that she'd written. So you said that potential reasons for her wanting to donate her body to science could be altruism, you know, the, for extending the forefront of science, or it could be she didn't like funerals, or it could have been she wanted to save on the cost of a funeral. Was there anything you found in that journal that suggested that that might be true? Well, yeah, I think money was always was always an issue and I think for a lot of people in, you know, in Australia in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, I mean, people weren't as affluent and comfortable as they are now. I mean, of course, a lot of people still live in very difficult circumstances. But, but she had a sibling too, didn't she, who died? Ah, uh, yes, her younger brother Morris died in in of an appendicitis attack. And at the time, the hospital bills, there were, you know, there was a private hospital system and that really had an impact on the family. So, yeah, these these kind of clues, like she was worried about money, but also I, I sort of think it was a mixture of her wanting to do a good thing. So I feel like she had a sense of altruism and wanting to, wanting to do good. I mean, in terms of the funeral, wanting to avoid a funeral, that's what one of my relatives said, that she didn't want any fuss around her funeral. So... Yeah, I mean, it was. it's kind of incredible trying to piece together a story from 40 years ago with no information, but you kind of put it together somehow. So given that you couldn't stop thinking about this, that must have involved you thinking about them lying on a dissector's table or being on a dissector's table. And what did you think and feel about that? Because it is a kind of an intense thought, isn't it? Oh, it was just like kind of think about being chopped up and you look at those old photographs of medical students standing around sort of a, a tattered corpse and it's, it is, it's, it's pretty gross and it's pretty terrible. But I think that what happened is that the more I researched it and the more that I spoke to anatomists and, you know, many of them told me that they love dissecting and the more I looked at anatomical art and the more I got into it, I was like, the human body is so beautiful 
Like there's a palace inside us and I think that sort of counteracted some of the, the awful dismemberment and the the yuckiness of it all was the fact that there was this other world of beauty and, you know, my grandparents' bodies taught students. So that's how I kind of balanced out the... I, I literally, Richard, I had moments where, you know, I interviewed old surgeons and doctors about dissecting at UQ in the 70s. So I basically was trying to track down people who were in the room at the same time and there was one... One um, older surgeon who his his you know after I spoke to him his detail of dissecting was so full on I just had to go outside and stand in the garden for a while I was like oh my gosh this is too full on you know as I asked you that question I said was it weird for you to think about them on the and, I, and then I, as soon as I said I thought it's not them on that table is it it's their bodies well this it's, is a very interesting thing, question is it? is it i mean it's is it are they is it a subject or is it an object and i think that's the thing that what's happening now is that there's a shift away from this idea that it is just a specimen that these are people yeah cuz i think we it's very human to constantly be wandering into the world of magical thinking when it comes to thinking about dissection do you find yourself doing that Look, I think that the there is a very deep, innate feeling in all of us about a fear of the dead and it is quite incredible that the, the dead do inspire so much in the, in the living in, in so many different ways. And the first thought that comes unbidden to you, which is, an, it, which is a crazy thought, but it still comes to you nonetheless, is, is there anything left of them in that body? Did, did you have that thought? Did you have those kind of superstitious thoughts that is there some kind of essence of them that ret- is retained in that body as it's about to be dissected? Look, I think because I didn't know them intimately, it wasn't so confronting. Um, but I think that for people who have a family member that donates their bodies, it can be very intense, that whole thinking about them on the table, what's actually happening to their bodies. And I think this is where the idea of the soul erupts. Uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci spent 30 years trying to find the soul in a human body, which is kind of quite extraordinary. And he did locate it where he th- thought it was. And there's a drawing, a famous drawing that he's done of where it actually is. And the reason he thinks that it is where it is is because he read a story that uh, apparently in Livy that when Hannibal needed to kill an elephant, they would pierce it at the back of your spine, you know, where your neck meets your the back of your neck. See, that's where Romans typically conducted executions of humans, was to plunge a sword into that part of the where the, the spine meets the neck and yes. that part of the body. So when so thinking that so what did that lead him to conclude where the soul where well, was that's it in where the head he, or the yeah, heart? No, in the no in the in back that spot, in, in that the back spot, of your neck. Yeah, in the back of your neck. Really? So yeah, so it's kind of and I think you know, when I was researching the book I would ask friends like, where do you you know, do you think you have a soul? And some people would say yes. And I'd say, Well, where do you think it is? And everyone pointed it like around the heart area or the maybe the head. And and this really plays out in, in the contemporary dissecting room. There are quite a few soul studies that I came across and why, you know, the brain has particular meanings for people, the heart has particular meaning for people. So for medical students, the issue of the soul is very significant, and but also more broadly, internationally. That's why in many parts of the world, you know, they are still using unclaimed bodies because people, for religious reasons, can't donate their bodies. See, this is what I think you've touched on in your book is you found a kind of a real dividing line there. And the dividing line seems, in people's reactions to this, seem to be, on the one hand, there are people who think 
who, or who strongly believe we have a soul or those who have some vague apprehension that we have something like a soul on us and those on the other side who say, absolutely not, that is ridiculous. Have I got that right? Do you think that's a, a clear dividing line there in the reaction you found from people? Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of the technicians that I interviewed, a, a fantastic guy called Robbie Boys, he talks a lot about, look, Jackie, they're dead. If you've been in a dissecting room, the people are very dead. There is there is nothing there. And then friends would say, I don't know, what's the big deal about dissection? You're dead, it doesn't matter. But for me, I personally, yeah, I absolutely feel there is that line between people who, and I'm not a religious person, but still I kind of have this sort of wafty, solely idea that if I was in the dissecting room, you know, what would it be like? I imagine myself being there. You mean as the donor body or do you mean as the as someone attending the dissection? Uh, probably both. I mean, that's why it's really interesting if you go back in time. Um, I mean, the reason we have chapters in books is because of anatomy. And What do you mean? Well, because of, you know, you had sections and so the first reference to book chapters is related to anatomy in sort of the 1500s. And there was a time when anatomy was sort of really flourishing and there are quite a few um, books and plays were written about fantasising about what it was like to be dissected. And, in fact, John Donne, who you might have studied at school, he's got a whole canon of dissection poetry, which we didn't do at school. And so, I did not know that. Yes. That's interesting. So I think this idea of wondering what it's like to be dissected and what it's to be like in the dissecting room is a very old idea and I think when people think about contemporary dissection, they're probably imagining themselves there too. You write a bit about the history of, of anatomy and dissection and there's the ancient world, these figures like Hippocrates and Galen who emerge in the ancient world. Then there seems to be this kind of lull in Europe in the Middle Ages. But then we get to the Renaissance and suddenly there's this explosion of interest in human anatomy and people doing outdoor dissections. People would turn up in their hundreds or thousands sometimes to watch an open-air dissection is our squeamishness about this a really recent thing? Yeah, look, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, I I did try to track down sort of old, you know, old old documentations of people watching watching these plein air anatomies, and they also used to build the, they built all these beautiful wooden theatres. Some of them that still exist in Europe. I think that what's happened now in a contemporary setting is that it's very controlled by the scientists. It's a very sensitive, highly sensitive space and it's it's so locked up and so unknown. I, I'm not sure. I think that if, you know, look at Gunther van Hagens. He, he has this travelling exhibition of bodies. Millions of people go to those shows. So I'm, I'm not sure how squeamish we are actually about this kind of stuff. I just think that we're not allowed to see it, in Australia especially. I'm not saying we, you know, you open the doors of the anatomy labs, but... Um, a lot of anatomical museums are closed to the public around the world. I think there's a bit of a maybe an issue that I have particularly around the way science controls who gets to tell these stories of the dead. I've never attended um, a surgical procedure except as a patient um, uh, and I've never attended a dissection and I don't know which one would freak me out more, to be honest. You've watched dissection videos. Were you frightened to look at those? Uh, look, they were so, they're so full on and there's so much of it. And yeah, it was pretty hard. Like I felt quite sick. My face was kind of in rictus for quite a while as but I watched. But do you watched. get past that? Yes. So yes, definitely. And after a while I could start to see 
Um, I mean, the reason why I started watching dissecting videos is because I just, you know, I wasn't able to get into a dissecting room and I was wondering what it's like and so I was reading books and then I, I don't know, I Googled something one day and sh- this whole canon opened up. And, I mean, th- some of the stuff is really quite fun and some of it's quite droll, some of it's very serious. Um, th- th- you know, there's a whole body of work in terms of anatomists around the world presenting their dissecting videos you know, it's a bit like you've got different types of cooking shows, for example. <laughs> is the blood all? Is there blood, or has the blood all been extracted from the no, body? No, the, 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 most of the bodies are embalmed, and so they're no. It's like it's quite stiff, and I mean, yeah, the, the, it's. Uh, I mean, and it, it really does give you a sense of how hard it is to dissect, and it, it and what an art form it is, and how you know you need to be very skilled to do it. Like, there's a lot of um, fat you have to cut through and fascia and it takes a long time to do it. It's it's a pretty tricky thing and some of the commentary was quite funny. Some of the com- funny. Wow. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's some Austrian anatomists that are that are pretty cool. And then there's also uh, some American influencers that have a very kind of funky video. They've got a store, a, a store where they sell items. You can get hoodies and mugs and you know there's this like hey Let's dissect, you know, and it's kind of... See, now I'm squeamish now. Are you telling me that I'm squeamish about all that? I absolutely found it really hard to watch the videos, but by watching them I learnt how they do it and I could start to see why anatomists do find the human body so beautiful. Was there a sense of unfolding wonder watching uh, uh, a dissection take place? Yeah, so there's... uh, For example, there's one... I watched a few videos on the sciatic nerve, which is the longest nerve in our body and is, is... yeah, so, yeah, you can really see, you know, they cut through and it's like you, you kind of follow, you know, it's like a minute, you know, going into a, a cave and looking for something. You're kind of on oh, a it's like of, a journey following its Yeah, its, it's like a little adventure. Look, I mean, look, it's not like watching an action movie, Rich, at all, you know, in terms of plot line and narrative. But it is quite fascinating when you sit there and you go, oh, my gosh, look at our sciatic nerve. Speaking there about the history of anatomy... When they dissected a corpse, would it typically always be a criminal? How would bodies be found? Okay, so this is the thing that I found so incredible was that it's there's this discourse around anatomy that sort of it's this, this bad, bad profession. You know, in the past they were just using hanged criminals and um, they were, you know, if you died in a mental hospital or you were poor and died in a hospital, you were dissected. And this is absolutely true. But I also found there's this whole other world of the dissected where you had aristocrats that were dissected. There's a lot of women that were dissected because they may have died in childbirth and doctors used it as an opportunity to study the body. You know, one of my favourite dissections, if I can say that in inverted commas, is this wonderful story from the 1300s of a woman called Chiara de Montefalco who was a nun who died in, in a monastery, in a convent, and all the fellow nuns got together and dissected her because they were looking for signs of Jesus and the signs of the Lord in her body and they found all sorts of things. They found a cross in her heart and you can actually go to Montefalco now and see their dissection. So... Of course it is, yes, anatomy has a terrible history of grave robbing and even today unclaimed bodies are used, but it's also a very complex history which, and you know, for example, Chiara de Montefalco, I mean, what a, what a, it is actually a beautiful story. So you have that dissection performed to prove the uh, existence of Christ and in the, in the, that's found in the body of this woman. But on the other hand, you have this emphatic statement of atheism. You've got the story in your book of a French society known as 
the Society of Mutual Autopsy, founded in 1876. Tell me about that group and what their plan was. Yeah, the Society of Mutual Autopsy. It, I mean, what a glamorous name for a club like Mutual it's, Autopsy. Yeah, it's yeah. So basically, they were arguing against you know saying there is no soul, and you know to prove it, when you died, you got your brain dissected by each other. Yes, they had a kind of a club and obviously very scientists in the club. And it was sort of, I think for some of them, they didn't want to just be, you know, buried and forgotten about in a churchyard. They wanted to have some sort of use. And so... So it's like that you don't want to, right, you don't want a religious funeral, but you want some kind of strange medical ceremony, if you can call that the section. Yeah, the, it's a... To lend significance to the moment of your death. Yes, well, and I think this is what, what plays out now with contemporary donors as well. They're, people do want there to be some meaning in their death. You uncovered some studies that have been done into why people choose to donate their bodies to science. What did you learn from that, Jackie? Well, the thing is there's not much research in this area, as you can imagine, but there is a woman in the Netherlands called Sophie Bolt who I would call like the queen of body donor research. And she has literally studied everything about body donors. And, look, there there is quite a few reasons. There's altruism, there's wanting to avoid a funeral, there's people that, you know, a reason I find very funny is that people think their bodies are interesting. Uh, and so, really? yes, wow. they think that they're interesting. And it's too good to go to waste in that too sense. Too good to go right. to waste. And the scientists might find something fascinating in their bodies. Um, but the other thing that she found too was that they were, they're quite serious about it. And she said that if you suggested to a, a body donor that they, their dissection didn't go ahead, they a lot of them got quite crabby. And they were, you know, quite upset about it. And I also interviewed a wonderful anatomist in Turkey called Ali Gersis. And he said the same thing. He did a small study of the tiny pool of body donors they have in Turkey. And he said that when he asked them about if your donation, you know, your family members stopped a donation, they also got very crabby. And so for some donors, it's a, this is something they really want to do. Like it's it's actually something they want to do. So for some of us, it seems like a really awful thing to do. But for body donors, it means a lot. It's, it's, it's significant. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, you said that some of the people choose to donate their bodies to science, wanted to avoid a funeral. Is that for ideological reasons or because they can't stand some members of their family? Uh, well, in fact, it is because they can't stand <laughs> some members of their family. <laughs> I mean, how 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 wild is that? <laughs> right. No, I'm I'm just going to donate my body to yeah, science. Yeah, I'd rather and, be dissected rather than, than Gary fuss. or right. whoever comes to my funeral. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, I rang a, a, a good friend of mine who has decided wants to donate her body to science, and I asked her why, and she said it's simply to be of use. She really wants to be as helpful as possible and then take up as little space. She doesn't want a grave. She doesn't want a grave taking up space in the ground. Is this the most common reason people really do want to help the expertise of surgeons, to help the expertise of doctors, to help medical research? 
Look, it does come up a lot in the research, the altruism element, but the, I think it's kind of spread across the board and, and definitely an issue is that you can get a free cremation. So cremations in Australia cost thousands of dollars and if you do donate your body to a university, they will cremate your body so you don't have to pay for it. So without a doubt, I think that is is an element and it's something that anatomists do talk about. And I also think that what is that thing? It's called social desirability bias. I think when someone's filling out a survey, you know, if someone says, why do you want to donate your body? You're more likely to say to help science than to tick, don't want to pay, you know, save on funeral costs. Or, you know, I think generally it is altruism. But I think that, that when you give a gift, you're also getting something out of it as well. Like it's this idea of gift giving is, is there's, it's a sort of a two-way street. And so for the donors they are also satisfying their desire to be dissected. You went to the International Federation of Associations of Anatomists Conference in London in 2019. That's a very, very long title for a conference. And you write that while you were there, you heard from a professor from a medical school in Taiwan. What did he say about how they organised the whole process of body donation in Taiwan? Yeah, look, this is a shift that's happening in contemporary anatomy. It's not really happening in Australia, but at their medical school, the students come to know the family members of the donors. So they will go to the donor's house after the person's died. They will go to the donor's house. They'll have a cup of tea. They get to really know about this person's life. And their pictures are posted on the walls in, in the dissecting room. And there's a lot of ceremony involved throughout the year and at the end when the, the students have finished with the body. So there's a they're sort of articulating the donors as their first patient. Uh, but it, it's peppered at different medical schools around the world, but it's it's sort of not a super common practice. It does happen a little bit in Asia. And I think that's a, a really interesting, another interesting debate is how in some medical schools the students know the name of the person and in other medical schools they don't. So it can't generalise about how it actually happens, dissection these days. It's, it's different from medical school to school. There are also all, all kinds of traditions and religious traditions that apply. Sometimes I read, reading your book, I wondered if there was another issue there about the willingness of some societies to, for people to come forward and donate their body. And that would be like the issue of trust in the government. Look, I think that in the US, um, black people are less inclined to donate their bodies, largely because of the distrust of the medical system. And I think that the politics as well of body donation plays out in all sorts of ways in different cultures. So in India, for example, it's become kind of a small political movement amongst communists, atheists and certain sections of the of the Hindu movement where for different reasons they're donating. Like there's this famous funeral for a communist um, leader that happened in 2010 there was a blow-by-blow account of his dissection in the newspaper and it, it turned into a political statement about, you know, not having a funeral and taking money away from Brahmin priests so that they couldn't conduct funerals. So it, without a doubt, donation is... It, there is a political element in some countries, but I think largely throughout Africa, many parts of Asia and particularly the Middle East, it's the spiritual element, the soul that we were discussing before that really stops people from donating... You went to a few anatomical museums that are attached to some universities in Australia. A friend of mine's been into some of those things and he says they're really super confronting. Are members of the public allowed in or is these, these museums tend to be for medical students only? These places are mainly for medical students. 
Anatomists have got a lot of concern because the way that the bodies were collected in the past, most of the people in the museums are unclaimed. They were people that probably didn't consent to be there. You mean they, they, they were taken from people who had died and no one had come forward to claim the bodies for some time after their death? Yes, exactly. So up in, in Australia, up until possibly even the 80s, if you died in a mental hospital, you would be sent for, you would be dissected. Obviously, it's phased, phased out now, but uh, without a doubt, swathes of uh, anatomical museums have in their collection uh, body parts from people that didn't consent. And so I feel that the anatomy schools probably, you know, they need to have that discussion about this is how science happens, this is what happened in the past. You know, you could have statements on the wall about this is what happened, this is the story of this museum. And when you were there seeing these specimens on display, how did it affect you? Some of them I found quite uh, upsetting and the other thing, though, that I found is that I learnt a lot. I learnt so much. So I had a bit of a groin injury a while ago and there was uh, one museum I went to that had like a wall of legs and it was quite interesting seeing the muscles and, you know, and sort of it actually gave me a really good sense of what was going on inside my leg and where the injury, you know, what was going on. But so at the same time, it is a, an extraordinary learning tool, but I do think that there are some some specimens that are probably maybe a bit too confronting for the public, but maybe what you do is you talk to the public about it. Given all the dissection that's taken place over the centuries and the fact that we can now have detailed MRI imagery of the tiniest interstitial bits within the human body, is there any point to anatomy? Is there anything left to discover in human anatomy? Well, this is a big debate in anatomical circles that, you know, anatomy is over. But if you speak to Quentin Fogg, who's a wonderful anatomist, he would say no way. It's becoming much more microscopic. So he, he specialises in hands. And so he's studying a group of ligaments that were, I think they were last identified maybe in the 1870s or something. They've sort of been, he's sort of rediscovered them in inverted commas. And so he's closely looking at, at how they work. So things are still getting found, weirdly enough. These days you mentioned students are likely to work on individual body parts rather than a cadaver as a whole. What's the thinking behind that? So largely I think now what happens is that the bodies are prosected and so you can have a large number of students that will study like an arm and you've got physios. By having it just as a, as a part, then the students can sort of touch it, they can, you know, learn from it. Instead of spending a whole year cutting open a body, which takes up a lot of time in a crowded curriculum, that's the reasoning behind the, the body part. But what's happening actually is there's a debate within anatomical circles about the lost art of dissection and that a lot of surgeons now, especially younger surgeons, need a lot more anatomical training. What attitude these days does the anatomy class have to the body being dissected? Is there an emotional distance that's necessary or not? One anatomist in New Zealand told me this incredible story that in fact, they use anatomy now and dissection as a way to teach students about death. And I was thinking, hasn't death always been in the anatomy room? But he was saying, no, it's actually a way for them to reflect on life and death. By spending time with a dead body or a dead body part, it makes them think about death, which is something they will definitely face in their profession when they become a doctor. You did get invited to attend a St Vincent's Hospital dissection course in Sydney 
Tell me about this dissection. What was being dissected in front of you? It was quite incredible. On on day one, it was human heads, so, so human the donor's heads. heads, yes. And then on the next day, it was head and neck. And it was a group of ENT trainee surgeons that were learning about important nerves, cranial nerves in the face. So you knew that's what you were going in to witness? I did. I was, yes. And so I, as you can imagine, I was completely freaked out. I was really worried that I was going to faint. But I, in the end, I was I was okay. And, and if anything, it became this incredible learning experience. You know, I learned a lot about surgery, actually, Richard. Like I now have this idea about what surgery actually entails. And so they're cutting open the head, but they're sort of following landmarks across the face. And the, 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 the reason it's so important that they practice on, on body donors is that in a, in a proper operation, if you cut that cranial nerve, a person might have like a the equivalent of Bell's palsy for the rest of their life. What, lose mobility over half their face? Oh, yeah. So it's so important that they learn where these parts, are, you know, where it all flows, the variations that can occur. But also it's about the haptic. And this is this is what came up again and again in my discussions with people is that, okay, there's all this amazing computer software out there now about the body. You've got the anatomage table, like, you know, at this conference in London, incredible software. I was like, wow, you don't need a human body anymore. But all the anatomists say... You do. You need to touch it. Mm. You need to touch the body. You need to see it in 3D. You need to feel and see how it works. After a while, you write you felt a kind of gratitude to the donors of these heads. Is that right? Yeah, I was like, you did it. You're here. You're, you know, you donated your body to science and it's happening and there's these students in this room learning. And, yeah, I definitely did feel a very, I felt really proud for them in a weird way. But also, too, I, I really, it really thought I, made me realise I was, I was witnessing a thousand years of history, like Andreas Vesalius, the great anatomist who published his book in 1543 and the nuns from Montefalco, like I, I was sitting in that room and watching, and I was like, this is an, a very human basic practice that, that is, I'm, I'm witnessing. So you felt, but you felt gratitude to the donor whose head was in the room, but they weren't present, of course. So again, again I, I keep, it's so interesting. I know, I, I completely yeah, understand I know what, what you you're mean. saying. Yes, yes. I completely understand it. I might have felt it myself. Do anatomists tell you they feel a sense of gratitude for the, the donor who is no longer in the room but their remains are? Do they feel a kind of warmth and thankfulness towards the donor? Look, I think a lot of anatomists take it very seriously. They treat the bodies with great humanity. Of course, they, they feel the gratitude. Like I think if you attend a Thanksgiving ceremony, you can really see the students and the, the honour that people have for the donors. Um, I also think some people have a very different attitude where this is science, let's just get on with it. But you do write about a technician or, or an anatomist who's dealing with an arm and he says, oh, look, as the arm's being opened, he says, look what he's showing you. Oh, yeah. So that's um, Eleanor Crook, who's one of the few waxwork artists in the world. And she, yes, that's a beautiful story. Um, Eleanor, the way that she, her reverence for the, for the donors, which I thought was quite wonderful about, yes, look what they're showing me. You were speaking there about the ceremony that they have for donors. And um, my friend who I mentioned who wants to donate her body was inspired by Walter Wood, who 
I interviewed on this program some some years ago, a wonderful, lovely, humane man, the late Walter Wood, who died recently. He talked quite a lot about the ceremony that they have at the University of Queensland's donor body organisation, as, as it is, that after two years they will gather the remains and they will be cremated or taken away or interred in some form. But they have this ceremony for the donors and the families of the donors, which is a really lovely thing. He, I think he mentioned that at the start they invited a, a priest and a Muslim imam and a, a rabbi and a, maybe a Buddhist priest as well to take part in this. But then the atheists who were present got really irritated by this and they didn't want to hear any of this language of spiritualism. So it's a much more secular service. Now, you thought it would be a good idea for you and your parents to attend one of these what was this service like, given that you had to participate in it virtually? I thought it was it was pretty impressive, actually, at the University of Queensland. Uh, this is during COVID when yeah, you couldn't go COVID, in Yeah, during COVID, yeah. So nothing's harder than running about a dissecting lab during COVID. And so what yeah, took place during the service? What happened? Uh, it was at like a, a conference pl- space on the, uh, you know, facility on the Brisbane River and... It was the, you know, various anatomists and dignitaries at the university and students got up and just spoke about how important it was that people donated their bodies. And I think the thing that really I found intriguing is that one of the students talked about how they wondered who this person was. And again, it was this idea of the subject, you know, science is meant to be this objective place where clearly this student could feel the subjectivity of this person on the table and they wondered who they were. How was it for your parents, and particularly your dad, whose parents were the ones who donated their bodies to science? How did they feel about watching these proceedings? They were fine. I mean, they mum thought they were both a bit worried it was going to be really religious, and then mum was impressed and said it wasn't too religious. They they they're of that generation that is quite pragmatic about things, so they thought it was fine. After all this, are you considering it for yourself? Have you given that much thought about donating your body to science? Well, look, I discovered that my great-grandfather was also dissected um, because he died in a mental asylum and in those days you were just sent off for dissection. My grandparents did it. I'm not sure if I'm going to follow... Family tradition. Yes, but and the thing <laughs> as well in the research shows that it does tend to be a family tradition. Families do tend to donate, but I personally at this age don't think I will um, and largely because I'm worried about being cold. You worry about being cold? I know, it's ridiculous, but that's all I can think about is being cold. I'm prone to feeling cold and all I would want is someone to put a donor over me. Can you imagine lying in that room? I'd just imagine being cold. But you know it won't be you in that room. I know, this is what's so fascinating, Richard. It's ridiculous, but that's what I think. But also people don't really tend to sign up to donation until they're in their 70s, like a bit older. So I've still got a way to go. But yeah, and I people do change their minds. Yeah, people do change their minds, but I still think I'm in the in the wafty soul camp. Uh, I still am worried that I'm going to be cold. What about you? Well, I, after talking to my friend about this, I, I asked her why she had made that decision to to donate, and then I thought, why don't I turn it back on myself and say, why haven't I done that? And I still don't know the answer to that. And I'm still thinking it through in my head. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like, because it's just, it's such a practical, handy thing to do. Um, look, they've got lots, I think the universities are fine for bodies. But yes, why, what is it? What is this mysterious? And I think that opens up a lot of questions for all of us, especially people that are atheists. 
This is a completely fascinating subject, Jackie. Thank you for taking us through this strange world that you've been exploring over the last few years. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Jackie Dent is an author and a journalist, and her book is called The Great Dead Body Teachers. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. If you like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator and the queen of common sense parenting. You may have heard me on Conversations before, a few times. But did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental as Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So if you have tweens, teens, grandchildren or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.